Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun, for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back, Tiger fans, to Rocket Nation's football podcast. I'm Nate Edwards. That's Brandon B.K. Kylie. This is Before the Box Score. It's Kentucky Week. It is our Wildcat Overlord Dethronement Week. Uh, this is a big one, B.K. How are you doing, man? I'm doing well, Nate. How are you doing tonight, man? Can't argue. Can't argue at all. Um, we are let's see here. It is Tuesday, so we've had some news so far um about depth charts we've heard from eli drinkwitz we've heard from the players but um we're gonna get into all of that in due time what i want to talk about first is a little thing i dropped earlier today because i was thinking bk you know one of the things about covid well one of the there are many things that covid has shown us but uh one of the things one of the lessons that we can learn at least from a college football standpoint is that it's apparently a lot easier to schedule football games than they made us think. Um, I, I posited, you know, hey, maybe this is something we should do every season. If, if, a, if a conference can whip up a conference schedule in, in less than a month, and if you know schools can schedule a group of five teams and, and non-conference games uh, within five days of each other, it might be a little easier uh, than what they led us to believe. And, and I've yet to hear so far a reason as to why we schedule games 15 years out rather than, you know, 15 days out. Uh, and the response I keep hearing from, from Twitter, which is such a great resource of knowledge, is money. Money, 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 money. Uh, but my question is, why is it more money to schedule out 15 years in advance rather than 15 days? Like I said, 
I don't know what that answer is. And I'm curious, BK, what are your thoughts on, on the scheduling and why we do it the way we do? Oh, I'd, I'd love to have a good answer for you. I don't have one. <laughs> um, I, w- I wish I did, but like, I mean, I can look at the schedule right now for Mizzou's future non-con opponents. I know in 2032, they're going to play Northern Illinois at home and Illinois on the road. I know in 2033, 34, and 35, they're going to play Illinois. Now, I got no issue with scheduling an annual game against Illinois as a home-and-home. I got no problem with that whatsoever. However, like, why do I need to know on October 20th of 2020 that on September 9th of 2028, Mizzou's going to play SEMO? (laughs) I I don't need to know that today. Um, I don't need to know that in 2027 for whatever reason, and I would imagine this has a little something to do with who Missouri's athletic director is, that they are going on September 11th to San Diego State. Mm -hmm. On the road to San Diego Mm -hmm. State. First of all, silly opponent to schedule. Second of all, who's going to be the the head coach at San Diego State at that point. What's the program going to look like? It's silly. There's no reason for us to do any of this. If we can put together within two, three, four days an entire SEC schedule, like we can redo all of it for at least two weeks, basically, then why are we doing this the way that we do it now? It just seems totally unnecessary. So I'm with you, man. I wish I could give you a good example or a good explanation as to why we do it this way. I don't think there is a good explanation other than this is the way that we've always done it. And for college football, that's typically the answer you get for everything is this is just how we've always done it. So it's how we do it now. And like, I don't, I don't know when it started. Cause yes, we've always done it this way. It tends to be the answer, but have we always done it that way? Like, like if you go back to 1968, was Missouri scheduling games, you know, 10, 15, 20 years in the future. I don't, I don't think they were, but that's that's what we do now, and I understand that it it can be kind of stress inducing for an athletic department for an athletic director. But so what? <laughs> like this is part of your job. I know you got you know nine, ten, fifteen, twenty sports that you're trying to schedule all all at once and and getting that done. So it'd be nice to work ahead. Um, but I just I don't see any benefit to it. If if your if your answer to me is that well, we need to schedule it that far in advance so that we can get the marketing in place and possibly set it up for a neutral site game. Get out of here. Get out of here. If you can't market something with a 14-year head start, <laughs> like then you're not good at your job. Um, also, we shouldn't be playing in we shouldn't be playing in NFL stadiums anyway. Like college football, if you want to play your bowls in a in an NFL stadium, that's cool. Um, but so rarely do they ever get filled up. Uh, it just it doesn't seem to have any point. And why can a concert have six months worth of head start for an NFL stadium, but college football needs 15 years, yeah. right? Like that date's going to be available. Yeah, it it should is. Be. And if Alabama wants to play Ohio State at Jerry World next October or next August or whenever it is, Alabama's going to be able to play Ohio State on a Saturday next They'll October if they out. want to. Yeah, like, yeah, they're, they're going to make sure that that date is open for that type of an event because it brings in so much money to the area and to that stadium and to the surrounding businesses that are around it. So it, it's just silly, man. I don't I've never understood this. Like, imagine if you had 15 years ago set up a game as a home and home against Miami. Well, at the time you were setting up a home and home against one of what at the time was the best programs in the country. And today they're, they're a good team, especially this year. It looks like they're getting back to being a respectable program, but this isn't the program that you scheduled. No. Imagine if, 
1995, somebody scheduled a game for 2007 against Mizzou. Well, that's not the program you were scheduling. (laughs) (laughs) Hold on. We didn't sign up to play Chase Daniel. Or if in 2007, you signed up to play Mizzou in 2017. It's just these things change so quickly and it's it's ridiculous, frankly, that we continue to do it this way when we know that things change so fast in college football. It's it's lunacy, man. Yeah. I, I will never understand it. And I'm with you. The facts that we have shown this year that it can be done, I hope it means that it will be done this way more so in the future. Yeah. Georgia-Ohio State would be an awesome game this year, well, last year, this year, probably next year, maybe the year after that. In 2030 and 2031, I don't freaking know. I don't freaking know. Maybe not. There's no rule that says that Ryan Day has to has to still be there or Kirby Smart. There's no rule that says that both these teams are still going to be good. Here's here's what I want to see, BK. Alabama was once upon a time, not all that long ago, not a very good program. You know, <laughs> True. Like, 13 it, years that, ago. That would have been a program 15 years yeah. ago that you would have been like, yeah, we're fine scheduling them. And now it's like, no, absolutely not. It's a death wish to be able to go back into that stadium, you know? Yeah. So it's it, even the top programs that you think right now are beyond reproach. We have no idea what they're going to be 15 years from now. 15 years ago, 20 years ago, let's go. Uh, Oregon yeah. was not the program that it is today. Mm-hmm. So USC, not the program that no, it is today. No, no, and no. those are in obviously different directions, but... It, it's crazy how much the landscape of college football can shift in five years, much much less 10 to 15. Here's what I want to see, because I know the other answer that I heard was, oh, well, it's recruiting purposes. Guys, no, no, you're not pitching a recruit on your non-conference schedule. You're pitching a recruit on your conference schedule. No one's coming to Mizzou because they're playing San Diego State or Kansas. No one's coming to Ohio State because they're playing Georgia in 11 years. Like, that's not the reason why. They're going to Ohio State so they can play in the Big Ten. They're going to Georgia so they can play in the SEC. So don't don't give me that crap either. Here's what I want to see. I want to see uh, you got the signing day, the last uh, the last signing day in February on the college football calendar. I want that to happen, and then 24 hours after that is done is the open season for scheduling that calendar year's season. So the class of 2021 signs in February, bam, next day, now you can schedule your 2021 class. And you got, or schedule, excuse me, and now you got like, you know, let's give them two weeks. Everybody's on the same starting point, right? Every school has their conference. Every school knows how many non-conference teams they can schedule, and everybody's on the horn calling everybody. Hey, do you want to do this? Hey, you want to do a home and home? Hey, I got someone who's going to give me three and two. Like, you can. It's going to be open barter season. It'd be so much fun, right? All these teams can announce, "Hey, we have our schedule done." And everyone's like, "Ah, crap! We don't get to play Vanderbilt this year, or whatever." You know, like there could be a whole, whole spiel, a whole fun little thing built around it. Um, and just see all those teams get snatched up and see what kind of schedule you're going to get after you get the recruiting class that you get. I just think that would be a lot more fun. Absolutely. It also creates another news cycle for college football, right? Like we know the transaction is in some ways even more significant for the NBA, certainly, or the NFL or these professional leagues. It's the same way in some respects for college football. Like, don't get me wrong, the games matter probably more in college football relative to the transactions than they than in the NFL or professional sports as a whole. But people pay attention to recruiting. We we work at Rock Nation, mm-hmm. right? Like we write for the site. 
some of the most clicked things that we do on the site, most of them, honestly, are recruiting things yep. because people are excited about what the future holds. Or, uh, I mean, honestly, on Fridays, whenever they put out the jersey reveal, and pants day, that's baby. a big thing. Like, stuff that college fans care about is this, you know? So am I going to get more excited about, hey, 15 years from now, Mizzou's going to play Illinois again, or... Hey, this upcoming season, Mizzou versus Illinois in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, the latter. The latter is what I'm going to get far more excited about. And, Nate, the other thing is, and this hasn't been quite as big of an issue in recent years, but we never know when more realignment is coming. And if and when that date does come, it screws with everything (laughs) because now your schedule in conference completely changes from one conference to the next Uh, For instance, Mizzou went from a a conference where they basically had all of their non-con games at the beginning of the season to trying to intermix them with the conference slate, and that became a real hassle early when Mm -hmm. Mizzou was uh, making its transition into the SEC. So there's a lot of reasons why I hate the way college football does its scheduling, but if anything good can come out of this season, maybe it's that. This is me getting super greedy, but I believe it was... I think I heard it from Bill Connolly first, the blog father. But I'm I'm sure it's a very uh, somewhat common request. Do you remember uh, Bracket Buster Saturday in college basketball from like was that 2005 to 2013 when they started doing that? Do you remember that, BK? I don't think so. So basically what it was, it, it was a very short-lived program, but it was awesome. But basically um, – Obviously, okay. A bracket buster in March Madness, the the college basketball tournament, is yeah. a smaller school or a G five that upsets a bigger school. Well, those schools tend to not be highly publicized, right? They fly under the radar. There's like 300 college basketball teams, so yeah, inevitably some of them are going to fly under the radar. Bracket Buster Saturday. What they did is they told the group of five teams. Well, I don't know what they're called in basketball. I guess mid majors in basketball. All the mid majors left one weekend. That specific weekend that schedule open and they wouldn't know what team they were going to play until like, as you got into the season, maybe a month ahead. And what they would do is the basketball schedulers would find these mid major teams who were vying for a possible tournament berth and pit them against each other to build up their RPI um, or their, or their, their, uh, their resume, right. To get into the tournament. Mm-hmm. So you would have, you know, the football equivalent would be like a Boise state playing in Cincinnati or UCF versus, uh, what's another good group? Houston. Memphis. New- Memphis. Memphis, right? Like, you would leave that that weekend open, and then they would schedule another team, another group of five team, equal to you, who could be making moves for a playoff or a New Year's Six berth, play those two teams together, and yes, it knocks one of them out, but it gives the other team a resume-building option. I thought that was a really cool idea for basketball. I'm sad that they took it away. I think it would be equally cool, maybe even more so for football. I love it. Um, I think you could do that. I think there's some opportunities here for like end of season. Maybe there's a Big Ten SEC challenge, right? So you pit the top team in the Big Ten against the top team in the SEC and you go down from there. Similar Mm -hmm. to what you see with like the SEC Big 12 challenge in college basketball. Mm -hmm. And each conference can decide who their affiliation is for any given year, right? And maybe there's... Uh, the MAC is going up against one of the Power Five conferences one year, and then Ooh. they kind of cycle through, mm-hmm. right? So I, I think that could be really interesting as well. Yeah. Man, see, uh, 
we don't have any leadership in college football. So there's yeah. there's just no way something like this can happen. You can't implement, you know, restri- restraining your scheduling games because all it takes is one school to keep scheduling ahead, or I guess two schools, and then everyone else is going to do it. Uh, you'd have no one to, to guide you as far as a bracket buster Saturday or anything like that. So it's just never going to happen unless you get centralized leadership, which we don't have. So it's all just a pipe dream, but I don't know. It's just one of those things I was like, we could, we could be better. And this is one of those things that kind of a small minor silver lining uh, that, that COVID's been able to give us. So we can hope and dream. Um, but, okay, so let's get to actual news because it is Kentucky week, like I said at the beginning of the show. We got depth charts. We got names on charts, and they're moving. I think the biggest one, BK, for me, there was obviously some shuffling as far as defensive line because of injury. But the big one is actually an absence, an absence of a name. Um, on the first and second string, a noticeable missing name is Damon Hazleton Jr., uh, the transfer from Virginia Tech, who started the first two games, was absent against LSU, and is now not on the two deep. Is this something you are concerned about, or is this just, ah, he'll make his way back? I don't know, honestly. Um, I think somewhere in between, like, I'm not super worried about it, but I think it's worth noting because Kiki Chisholm is listed as an or with Towski mm-hmm. Dove at one wide receiver position. And then at the other, it's Boo Smith and Mike, Michael Wilson. So what <laughs> happened there? Like I get Boo Smith getting his opportunities. Sure. He should. We talked about this last week. Towski Dove and Boo Smith both deserve their opportunities. They should split time now. And I'm happy to see that there's an or listed next to Dove and Chisholm. I thought that Hazleton would have had the same opportunity next to Boo Smith. Mm-hmm. So I'm stunned by this, honestly. I I didn't see it coming at all. And so I don't know what to make of it. I These things are looked over a million different times. And one quick disclaimer, these are not made by the coaches. These are not their official depth mm-hmm. charts. These are made by the SID. These are made by the people that are in charge of putting everything out into the media, mm-hmm. right? They do a good job on them, and they try to make them as accurate as humanly possible. However, it is worth noting that, and we'll, we'll see how much this... Uh, represents what we're going to see on Saturday. If it is that, if Hazleton basically doesn't play or is clearly the third receiver there, that is really noteworthy. And it makes me wonder what happened because he's talented enough to be up there with Boo Smith. Mm -hmm. In fact, he's more talented than Boo Smith is. But if he's not getting the reps, it means something behind the scenes. I, I'm, this is 100% speculation, but something clearly happened. He could just be having a, a crap week. You know, he's coming back from COVID. Sure. Um, he might not be 100%, but he's out there giving it his all. and Like, like, like he's cleared, right? Like It's not like he's contagious, but like he hasn't physically recovered from it. You know, obviously, COVID has different impact on different people. Some people have lingering side mm-hmm. effects, especially respiratory issues, if you, especially if you have pre-existing conditions. So that, that might be it, and it's just, hey, you know, he's not 100%, but he's back, and we're not going to push him, uh, so we don't expect contributions. So third straight. It could, it could be something simple as that. But because this is – us it's a sports talk and this is what we do we have to we have to think of it we got to kind of analyze every angle here and like you know let's coming in we knew hazelton and you you did the film work so you are i'm preaching to the choir as far as you go but at least for our listeners coming in we knew hazelton was a high target low cash percentage guy who went deep made the big catches 
and probably dropped a few easy gimmies, right? So far this year... He's Jamon Moore. Yeah, yep. he's Jamon Moore, exactly. So this year, so far it's two games against Alabama and Tennessee, so keep in mind that was the competition. He's got 16 targets, he's got nine catches, and he has a cool even 100 yards. 16 targets, nine catches, 100 yards. I mean, given the competition he was going against, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, he is actually still the most targeted receiver, and he missed a game. <laughs> so um, it's not like he didn't get a shot. It's not like he wasn't uh, not a favorite of, of the quarterbacks. It's not like he wasn't producing at some point. He was producing exactly the way that we thought we were, we were going to, uh, and now he's buried kind of at the third spot there. So honestly, BK, I think it's going to be more of let's see – what happens against Kentucky before we draw any conclusions? Because like you said, you know, these are made by SIDs. Yep. And just because you get uh, a starting spot or you're listening on the two deep, that's not determining how many snaps you get. That doesn't determine how you're used in the game. Um, but it's just one of those things you sit and go, huh, what's going on there since there's this friend Chisholm's up there and he's not? Yeah, it's it's one of those things where I just – having covered the team on a day-to-day basis in the past, I have seen the depth chart change so much from Tuesday to Saturday so often that I just, I don't always take it at, at face value, but a move like this is noteworthy Mm -hmm. because this is not just some insignificant, like, Hey, the second string middle linebacker is now listed as the third string middle linebacker, both of whom probably weren't going to play anyways. (laughs) Right. This is the guy that you came into the season when they announced we need more touchdown makers and they brought this guy in and said, this is one of our touchdown makers. Mm -hmm. Like, this is noteworthy. He's a grad transfer who came from another Power 5 program that has proven that he can do it at this level. And now he's third on the depth chart behind a converted quarterback who last week had one target, albeit a great target that ended up going for a touchdown over the top and a very busted coverage. Mm -hmm. But... I mean, let's be honest here. Damon Hazleton is a more talented wide receiver than Micah Wilson. And so the fact that Hazleton is listed behind him is really surprising. And it is noteworthy. And I want to clarify, like when I said that something clearly is going on here, I'm not saying like he's a bad guy or anything like that. I'm just saying something, there's more to the story than meets the eye. It's not just, like you said, there was something that happened on the field whenever he was out there. There's something else. I I don't know what it is. Maybe it is respiratory, and he's just not all the way there, and his conditioning's not up to par, so they want to take it slow for him to get back. I don't know what it is. But something's up, because otherwise it makes no sense that he would be third on the depth chart behind Micah Wilson. Who is the best... Uh, I want to phrase this very specifically. Who is the best power five transfer player that Missouri football has ever had from a production standpoint? Guy who started somewhere else at a power five school, transferred to Missouri and played. Who is the best of that group? That it should immediately come to mind, but it's not. Who you got? I, I'm not sure there is one. Brian Coulter? Okay, Maybe? I was about to say, I, I was trying to figure out, I, I was going scratching my mind, like, I I can't think of any immediately that come to mind. And, uh, did Brian Coulter go the JUCO route? I don't remember. He started at Florida State, I remember that. I can't remember if he transferred straight in. But, I mean, the point is, is what I'm trying to make here is that I, transfers are always kind of a crapshoot anyway. Um, I know we kind of make a big deal about them when we get them, but 
you know, they weren't good enough to start on their own team. Um, Bud Elliott over at 247, he says, whatever, whatever transfer player you get, if he was a four-star, knock him down one star, right? So five stars are now four-star contributors. Four stars are three-star contributors. You're not getting that guy out of high school. You're getting that guy after a couple of years and a little bit of a, uh, maybe delusionment, if you will. Uh, but, okay, so, oh, here's, okay, Darius White. What about Darius yeah. White? He was solid. Not spectacular, but he was a, he was a third receiver on that 2014 team. Yeah. Um, who else do we have? They have that, uh, is, are you thinking of Chris White? No. The, the, the kid that came over from Bama? No, that's Chris Black. Is that his name? <laughs> the other color. Chris Black, yes. <laughs> no, Darius White uh, was a Texas transfer. He was from Fort Worth, Texas. Yeah, I remember him. Chris Black is who I was thinking of, and he didn't exactly live up no, to No, he was a five-star, I want to say. Uh, he came yeah. in. He was a Jacksonville pro- product. He came in 2016 on that lo- – oh, there's your answer, 2016. Yeah. But the thing about Chris Black is that they never played him. I think he started mm-hmm. – I think he started the West Virginia game and then disappeared until the Mississippi State game or something like that. Like, he just – he didn't play. Same for Alex Ross out of Oklahoma. Yep, yep. Like, Alex Ross came in. He was like a kick returner. Yes. And it was, it was weird. He came in. He's like this big, rocked-up dude, and he just never played. 6'1", 227. We're like, oh, yeah, this is going to be the dude. And it was the Ish Witters show, I think is what it was at the end of 16. Mm-hmm, yep. Oh, what about Caleb Pruitt? Ugh, he didn't leave on good terms, but um, no, he 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 was solid when he was on the field. He he, he was solid. Yeah, it, Blue Springs alum. That was the uh, I actually knew him in high school. Did Jordan Elliott come here from JUCO or did he come here straight from Texas? From Texas. That's okay, the, that's so that's the, the guy. There you, there you go. go. Not a grad transfer, but a power five, power five transfer. transfer. That's it's the one. Him. Yep. Because yeah. like uh, Khalil Oliver, he played, but he wasn't like super. Off. Oh, he was Idaho. Never mind. That yeah. was a. He was FCS at that time. So, I mean, Kelly. Oliver? Oliver came from Oregon. Did he? Oh, yeah, he yep. did come from Oregon. Okay. So, I mean, he was fine. Kelly Bryant was obviously fine. Sean Robinson is fine. Jonathan Nance was okay. But, like, the point is, is that, you know, these transfers, they, it's rare to get an impact transfer like that. So, I don't want us to be, you know, write Hazleton off. Like, oh, you can't even crack the top two. Um you know, on this team, like, what the hell's going on? Like, that's not it. Plus, Mike Maietti's doing really well. Grant McKinnis is doing really well. Like, you can have good players, but it's – I feel like sometimes we jump the gun and put way too much pressure on these transfers to, like, immediately be awesome and win all the Heismans when it's just kind of like, eh, sometimes it's just a crapshoot. With all of that said, like you, like you mentioned off the top of this conversation, like, he was basically producing the way you would expect him to. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's why I'm saying I think something is yeah. is going on. Yeah. May, may, again, maybe it is just health. It, it very well could be as simple as hey, he, he's not 100 percent right now. We got to nurse him back up to health. And I'll, I'll be interested to see if um, there are some questions about this later on in the week after we've already recorded this. Mm-hmm. But it may be that simple. But he's been producing when he was out on the field. He was. I would say pretty clearly at worst their second or third best receiver. Um, and now he's not even the second receiver at his own position. So it, it is definitely noteworthy, and it is something that will bear monitoring over the course of the game. If he doesn't play much on Saturday, 
I would be stunned if that's not one of the first questions asked, regardless of the outcome. Sure. I agree. Um, and just because I have the data, um, Robinson likes to throw to Hazleton a lot. Obviously, they got a lot of work in fall camp. But, you know, even Baselak, he's got one, two, three, four. Uh, is that it? Oh, here we go. Five, six, seven, eight. So eight of Hazleton's targets have come from Connor Baselak. So it's not even like a, a fit thing. Obviously, a lot of people were saying, oh, you know, Baselak had a lot of work with uh, Smith and, and Wilson and like all the backups who were playing uh, against LSU. He has better rapport with them because he was that's who he was practicing with. And yeah, that's true. But number one, Baselak was practicing with the ones as well. And number two, he threw to Hazleton a lot. So it's not that either. I don't know. I think I'm with you. Hey, how often does Hazleton find the field against Kentucky? If he doesn't, then we have no answer, and it's a question that needs to be asked to Drinkwitz. And if we do see him, we'll just see how he does and just leave it at that. Yeah, if we and if we do see him, it's a non-story, honestly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. It, it, it's it's either going to be a really big story or a totally non-story after after Saturday. Yeah. Speaking of stories, BK, you've been uh, taking a look at Mr. Larry Roundtree the third, uh, the guy, most recent guy who's been climbing the uh, the record books, Missouri record books as far as running backs go. Uh, you have a piece who, that will be dropping uh, the day that this podcast comes out. So uh, I know you've been working. I love seeing your little your tweet storms happen on the Twitter. I go up. <laughs> oh, he's in the lab. He's working on something. So uh, yeah, what have uh, what have you seen so far? I just. It's basically an appreciation post for Larry Roundtree because he's going to go down as one of the most underappreciated Mizzou great players of the last 20 years. This guy's going to end up being almost certainly second in Mizzou history in career rushing yards behind only Brad Smith. He's going to be first among Mizzou running backs ever in the history of the program in career (laughs) rushing yards. Like, think about that for a second. And yet, we're probably never going to put him above some of the guys that we've seen before him because he doesn't have the great moments. And it's totally understandable. Like, I'm not even sure that he's better than Henry Josie. I would probably take Josie over Larry Roundtree, even Mm -hmm. though Roundtree has been more productive, technically, in in terms of his career. But Roundtree has been the one thing that's been consistent about this program over the last four years. You've had different quarterbacks. You have now had different coaches. You've had a number of different offensive systems that they've utilized. They've gone through, I think, three other partners, maybe four other partners for him in terms of the guy that's like taking the other half or the other portion of the load. And Roundtree's always been there. This is maybe my favorite statistic that I found, even more so than um, the career yardage mark or anything like that. If you want to look at the number of attempts that he's had since 2017, he leads the SEC, which is kind of wild. The only power five backs that have more attempts than Roundtree over the last four years are Jonathan Taylor, A.J. Dillon, J.K. Dobbins, and Zach Moss, all of whom were drafted <laughs> last year. Um, but my favorite stat for him is he hasn't missed a game. In his entire uh. career, he has not sat out a game for injury. Which is just remarkable given his playing style. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing that I, as I kind of went back and rewatched a bunch of his snaps from this year, and I've at this point watched all of his runs from the last two weeks, he just runs so hard and so physical. And I just, I have an appreciation for a guy that is such a throwback in a lot of ways who has been so consistent throughout his career. And so I, I think that dude deserves all of the credit in the world for, first of all, sticking it through. 
in what has probably not been the easiest time to be a Missouri Tiger. Mm -hmm. And second of all, being as productive as he has been behind what is not always the best offensive lines that we've seen at Mizzou either to be able to put up these kinds of numbers is pretty uh, remarkable. So he is currently fourth in career rushing yards behind Brock Olivo. He's what, eight, eight behind Brock Olivo. Uh, He is 180 yards behind Zach Abron. Both of those guys from Missouri, by the way, Lake St. Louis, Zach Abron, uh, Washington, Missouri, Brock Olivo. On career rushing touchdowns, he's currently tied with Olivo at 27. Uh, he will next surpass West, Devin West and Derek Washington at 28. Henry Josie's 30 is square in his sights. He could maybe pass up Corby Jones at 38 career rushing touchdowns. We'll see. And, of course, Zach Abron's right there at 39. Uh, he has the fifth best single-season rushing yards. 1,216 yards in 2018. Um, yeah, the dude, uh, the dude's awesome. And he has outlasted, let's see here, he had, he came in with Demaria Crockett, right? That was his first mm-hmm. yep. partner. And then it was, was one. It was first in Demaria Crockett, right, and then now the last couple of years, Tyler Beatty. Ish Witter, by the way. You want to talk about the power of just sticking around and playing? Tenth on career rushing yards. Ish Witter, 2,418. That's a guy that we yeah. also forget. <laughs> like, great pass blocker. He was on, he was on great one pass good blocker. Team. Oh, excellent. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, Larry's been great. And I think part of it is is the Odom problem, right? Because all these freshmen flashed in their first year. Like, oh, it's only up from here. And then it was more just like a plateau, and they didn't really do anything past that. Um, Browntree's been really good. I, is, has he been? Well, I think I think you said it. He was most. He's been the most consistent over the past four years, and it's it's great to see him. Um, I I wouldn't suggest he do this, but just in your opinion, would he would he even consider coming it's back? It's interesting because that was I was gonna write in the piece something along the lines of appreciate this while you can, since it's gonna be his last year here on campus. And then I thought about it for a second, yeah. and I was like. I don't know. Like, is it going to be his last year on campus? I I think so. You got it. I would so. imagine yeah. it is. I think it'll all come down to what the NFL says, right? Because if they tell mm-hmm. him, hey, uh, you're looking like you're going to be an undrafted player. And I don't. Th- I would imagine he would get drafted. There's guys in the league that I think are worse than Larry Roundtree. But I, I don't know what mm-hmm. his metrics are. Like, I don't know what he's going to run the – 40 in I don't know what his shuttle times will look like and if you just have abysmal times in those things like he might not get drafted it's possible Demaria Crockett I thought was going to get drafted and then he didn't um so and he thought he was getting yeah he he had great times and everything like he he was a specimen Mm -hmm. so I would have imagined that he would have so I, I don't know if I had to guess I would think he'll be gone I think that's the likelier option but I think Roundtree really loves it at Mizzou. And I think that's part of what makes me sad about his time here is that he was a dude that from the day he got to campus, it seemed like he immediately bought in. Like he was all in on playing for the Tigers and being in Columbia and being a leader inside of that that locker room. And so it kind of stinks that he was just he his timing was terrible because he was never really on a team that was a contender. His best teams were late in Drew Locke's career, but even those were not exactly beloved by this fan base because that was, Mm -hmm. by that time, everybody had kind of turned on Odom already. And so you're right. He has this 
the stench of the Barry Odom era. And so I'm glad that he's getting at least one season of kind of being free of that. And the other thing that he's free of is this, this pairing of really kind of being a tandem with anybody. Mizzou's running backs this year have 65 carries. Roundtree has 50 of them. <laughs> 50. That's crazy. Like, he is 100% the yeah. workhorse back for them this year, and he's doing really well with mm-hmm. it. So it's been awesome to watch, man. I don't think he'll be back next year, but I've seen crazier things. Yeah. I can't I can't predict anything this season. <laughs> no, it's it's impossible. But, I mean, I don't think he's going to get 1,000 yards. Uh, he's currently has 270, so he's a tad under. You don't think he will? I think he might. Game. With the way they're working really? him this year, I think it's in play. I think it's in play. I mean, you got to think he's already had two Just of his between... toughest matchups of the season. Well, he's still got Georgia to go. Florida is uh, explosive. <laughs> he could either get 200 or 20. You know, it kind of depends on how Todd Grantham is feeling. But, no, I, I mean, I, I don't know. 270 over three games, I guess conceivably it could happen. I just, I don't know. I don't ever think we can have nice things, BK. You know I know. And, and, like, Arkansas's defense, for instance, is is quite good this year, and we, we'll talk about that eventually, I'm sure. And the team that Missouri's playing this weekend is quite good defensively. So he's he definitely has they some are. really difficult matchups coming up. I totally get that. But I wouldn't be stunned if he finds a way in one of these games. Maybe it's against Mississippi State, or he has a couple of big runs against South Carolina, something like that, and he ends up with, like, 200 in one of these games. That makes up for it. I wouldn't be stunned if he ends mm, up with yeah. with a thousand on the season. Okay, well, I'm certainly hoping that that happens. That'd be a great way for him uh, to end his career here, if that's what he decides to do. Um, or if he wants to mm. come back, that's fine too. But thousand yards, man, that would that would put him. Uh, well, that that would put him firmly in, in second. Yeah, it's firmly in second, not anywhere yeah. close to Brett's. Firmly in second, <laughs> but that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see. Um, obviously, his next test is against Kentucky, like we said, and Kentucky's no slouch, dude. Hey, I know you were, you know, four years old when Missouri was still in the Big Twelve, but uh, how you remember those Bill Snyder Kansas oh, State teams and how they were just they those were the worst games to play. I always hated playing Kansas State because it always felt like you could beat them because they didn't do anything anything flashy. But they just executed really well, and they were very disciplined, and they would always just eke it out. And you're like, oh, Are we you were talking right about there. Bill Snyder and, or Chris you, know, you just, <laughs> Ooh, well, you, yeah, I mean, they got a type, yeah. don't they? They really got a type. Um, but it, it works. It works at a school like Kansas State, and it's so frustrating because you know there are there are years when you're more talented, or your years where you got better scheme, and they just they just take away the thing that you do well frustrate the hell out of you you make a couple mistakes and it's game over and that's just how i feel that kentucky is kentucky for all intents and purposes is a triple option in service academy right they run 63 percent of the time no matter what the down and distance is they throw only when they have to they'll play ball control they'll play field position they'll let their nasty defense kind of push you around and they'll just wait for you to screw up and you know kind of like last week tennessee screwed up a lot because they kept insisting on throwing and it gave Kentucky a two touchdown lead, and they just they just coasted to the end. And it's like, damn, <laughs> it sucks to play them. It's no fun. And and I just, this is it, guys. This this is the first test. I I know we played Alabama. I know we played Tennessee, and we beat LSU. But like this, this is the first 
real test. And um, I'm nervous. How are you feeling, BK? Yeah, you should be nervous. Uh, this is a good team. And they're going to make it really, really difficult on Mizzou. And they have a tremendous defense over the last two weeks. If I, I'm pretty sure I saw this stat. Their defense has scored more points than they oh, have yeah. allowed oh, yeah. against Tennessee and Mississippi State, which is just wild um, considering what Mississippi State did in week one. And then we all saw what Tennessee did uh, against Mizzou. So it's going to be a massive test for everybody. I think this is a measuring stick game for Mizzou in a big way. And this is for the program. This is for the quarterback and Connor Basilek and seeing where he is at in his progression. And if we've gone one step too far in comparing him to Chase Daniel in some respects, <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, which the answer is yes, of course we have. Um, but, I mean, the other thing is Mizzou hasn't beaten Kentucky since 2014. Correct. The thing that Barry Odom ultimately got fired for, in some respects, was Kentucky. Like Kentucky was just a better program. They they elevated above Mizzou in Barry Odom's tenure at Mizzou. Mm-hmm. So this for this season, for this quarterback, for this program, for this head coach, all of it. It's a massive, massive measuring stick for the Tigers. And I don't know which way it's going to go, man. I think that Kentucky should be favored, as they are. I haven't checked the line recently, but I know when it opened, they were a decent little favorite. And I think that's correct. I, I think Mizzou should be the underdog going into this game. But I also think they can win it. I, I wouldn't be stunned if they ultimately win this game, like, 24-20 on Saturday. Mm. That, that, that wouldn't shock me. Would it Would it surprise you? 24-20. No, that, that seems about right. I mean... This is a team that's run for over 400 yards and lost and then put up a combined 170 yards and won. So, like, it's it's never what the, off, the Kentucky offense does. What they do doesn't matter. It's all about can you move it on their defense. Um, and, look, LSU's defense is a lot worse than Kentucky's, so let's not get that wrong. Let's not fool ourselves yeah. here. But, as, as you've mentioned, as I've mentioned several times – Against Tennessee, if Missouri receivers had just caught the ball and not dropped it, Bazelak would have had an over 80% completion percentage. So that's something that he does against good defenses and bad defenses. Kentucky's defense is good. They are 26th in the nation right now, according to S&P. Sorry, SP+. Let me get that right. LSU's was 41st. <laughs> okay? So, yes, it's a little bit of an upgrade. But Tennessee's 18th. 18th so Kentucky and Tennessee are pretty similar um the thing about Kentucky is that they will shut you down when you have to pass like in passing downs but they are oddly susceptible to the pass they are 60th in passing success rate interesting 63rd in in completion rate their opponents are completing 65 almost 66 percent of their passes and they played Jarrett Garantano, <laughs> they played KJ Costello, <laughs> Matt Corral, and Bo Nix. Okay, these are not a like a, 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 a murderer's row of, of quarterback completionists here. Okay, like they they will let you complete it. Um, you know they'll 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 also let you go far too. I, I think uh, no, sorry, let me I got that backwards. They don't let you go very far, but they'll let you complete the ball. So they like to keep everything in front of them. Um, the thing to keep so a big thing there, just just kind of pop mm-hmm. in here real yeah. quick. Got to catch it. Got to catch it. Got to catch it. 
Um, if, if they're not going to give you any run after the catch, those drops are even more costly mm-hmm. because you're not going to get the big chunks in a game like this. So it's possible. Maybe that's why Damon Hazleton in this oh. game is, is a little lower on the, on the depth Ooh. chart, right? Maybe it has something to do with the opponent and the way that they're going to play him. Cause you know, Towski Dove and Boo Smith. They're going to catch everything. Michael Wilson, he's going to catch everything that comes his way. You know the same thing is true of Barrett Bannister. Anything that comes his way, he will catch it. So I, I wonder if maybe that plays into it a Damn, bit dude. Is Drinkwitz, like, subscribing to advanced statistics and building his <laughs> roster based off of it? Oh, my God. You're all in. You're all How in. How could I love this man anymore? <laughs> oh, my God. That would be awesome. That would be incredibly awesome. Um, Wow. Now I'm all hot and flustered. That's That's tremendous. <laughs> Um, but yeah, you got You got to pass the run because they will shut down the running game. They are pretty much top 35 in every running category you can think of. Um, so it's, you got to find ways around it. This probably won't be a big round tree game unless the receivers are catching the ball and opening it up for a round tree and Beatty and everybody to, to, to do their thing. So I think this is, this has the potential there. I phrased it correctly. It has the potential for another good base like game. The thing that we have to do is maximize possessions because Kentucky just runs, runs, run, 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 run. You know, you blink and the first half is over. You got six possessions to do something. You can't just waste them on three and outs because Kentucky's just going to hold on to it and grind and grind and grind and and just play keep away from you the entire time, which is the most frustrating way to play offense. It's awful, man. I I hate watching games that are this style. Um, this is not a shot against Kentucky. No. Like they are playing the style that they should be playing. Mm-hmm. This is exactly what they should be doing. It is really smart by their coaching staff to go this route. But God, is it frustrating to watch because it is. It is just you might get. What is it? I'm I'm sure you have these numbers. What is a typical game for a team like Mizzou in terms of possessions in a game? Usually, you're looking at about seven and nine. Seven to nine possessions. Mm-hmm. Maybe they'll look at six in a game exactly. like this. Yep. Like that, that's the kind of thing that they can cut it down because of the way that they run the ball and the clock drains down 40 seconds after every play, and then you run the next one, and then a clock drains down 40 seconds, and then you run the next one. And it's just it is mind-numbing the way that they do it. The other thing that can happen whenever you have a game like this is they have a 14-play, 55-yard <laughs> field goal mm-hmm. drive. And your offense comes out and you go pass on first down, incomplete. Run on second down, second and seven now. Third down, you get a pass, you end up completing it for four yards. Boom, you're off the field. It only took off 50 seconds. Mm -hmm. Your defense is back on the field again. So you got to be kind of mindful of a lot of those things in a game like this. But the biggest thing is kind of going back to what you said originally. It's about taking advantage of any opportunity that you get. Whether that be a catch across the middle that's going to get you five yards, you got to come down with it. Even if you're going to get popped by that linebacker that is that is roaming, um, if you've got something over the top that you think you can hit, and Basil looks really good on those corner routes, hit it, take it whenever you get it. <laughs> so they 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 have got to hit on those opportunities in a game like this, man. I I can't wait to watch Basilek in this I game. Know. I'm going to be writing about this later in the week. It is. It is the single most interesting thing potentially of this Mizzou season is watching him against this defense Mm -hmm. because what he showed in his first real start against LSU was awesome. What he showed in that second half against Tennessee was awesome. 
Now I want to see him against a really, really big test in Kentucky when the game is still in question. This is going to be a fun one. I want to see how he performs and what kind of passes they're, they're, they're dialing up for him. Uh, Yusuf Corker is Kentucky's, I think, free safety. He's played every snap so far. He's got two passes broken up. He leads the team in tackle, so he kind of he's all over the place. So I don't know if they're going to test him deep or if it's going to be kind of more short stuff uh, to open up the big stuff and, and the run as well. But, um, you know, Devontae Robinson is their other safety. He hasn't been super active, but Cedric Dort, their cornerback, very sticky guy. Um, his let's see how many pass breakups does he have? He's got one so far this year. Um, there, it's just it's a very sound secondary. That's what that's what Stoops puts out on the field, like really good secondaries. And when you pair it with a pass rush that's super effective, which by the way they have, um, it it's a it's a recipe that Missouri used to great extent. Uh, you know, in the Big Twelve, even without an elite secondary, so uh, they have both, and it's it's very frustrating and. For reference, just in case you're wondering, uh, against Alabama, nine possessions each team. Against Tennessee, nine possessions each team. Against LSU, <laughs> LSU had 14 possessions. Missouri had 13. Um, so, yeah, this one's going to be complete opposite of the LSU shootout. Yeah. Um, and so that gets back to what's going to happen every single every single game, which is finish your drives. Points per opportunity. I harped on it last week against LSU, the week before that against Tennessee. If we get to a point where Missouri gets six possessions, <clears throat> only gets about three or four opportunities out of it, and they are averaging three points per opportunity, that ain't going to cut it, guys. You got to be around your four fives that we saw against LSU. Um, and really what I'm hoping is that, you know, you get six or seven possessions. That creates six opportunities. You get 5.2 points per opportunity. That would be 31 points. I think that would win it. Uh, you said 24, 20, that kind of area. Um, mm-hmm. what does Bill say? Bill says twenty six to twenty one Kentucky, roughly. So makes sense. Um, yeah, it's going to be close, and you got to really capitalize on those opportunities. Yeah, and the the other thing is like, if you don't, Kentucky will. Yeah. Um, yeah. they have nine interceptions, including three that went back for touchdowns yeah. the other way. That's uh, can't have that. They've had five fumbles that they forced. They have recovered all five. Um, on third downs, opponents are com- converting just 31% of the time, which is a wild, wild number. Um, once you get into the red zone, they are converting at just a 60% rate. They have not allowed a field goal this year, which is a strange hmm. thing to say, but opponents are 9 for 15 when they get into the red zone. All nine scores are touchdowns, which oh, is that's good, good, but the fact that other opponents are not even – converting six out of those 15 mm-hmm. for anything is problematic. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's basically coming out to like a three and a half points per opportunity in the red zone, yeah. which is terrible. Yeah. Um, so it, Mizzou's got to take advantage. Those are the money downs, right? Third mm-hmm. down red zone opportunities, and then giving the ball away. That's all stuff where you're beating yourself Kentucky ain't going to do any of it, and you can't allow yourself to fall into any of those things going into this game. I know that's something that a coach would say, <laughs> but it, typically some of that th- some of that stuff can be a little overstated in a game like this against that team. It's not. It, it's very very real because they're gonna they're gonna make you pay for any mistakes that you make. You know what I really like? Well, there are many things I like about Coach Trinquist. Let me be clear. But the thing that I like today, how about that? Um, did you see or hear or read any of his press conference today? 
quotes. I saw one quote in particular where he said he had the team stand up in front of him and he basically said, hey, how many of you guys, if, if you have, raise your hand, how many of you have defeated Kentucky in your career here at That's Mizzou? That's the one. And obviously none of them <clears throat> stood up, none of them raised their hand. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that was a that's a pretty cool moment. What what was your takeaway? From that, that basically that that I I appreciate a coach who can be honest with the program that he's at and embrace this sort of thing. He's not running away from it. You know, I kind of feel like you know like an Odom or a Pinkle would be like, well, we don't really talk about that. We just focus on what we can do today, and like that's fine too. I I appreciate that approach. That's probably a little bit more productive, but I I like it's fresh. It's fresh. You don't hear this all that often where they embrace, hey, we've gotten our asses kicked five times in a row. Let's let's turn that thing around. I really, really like that. Uh, I'll like it less if we lose a sixth time in a row, but you can get the idea. Um, he's not afraid of it. He's embracing it, and he's challenging his players to do something this week. Um, yeah, if that's what it takes to focus and win, do it. You know, if they execute better, if they, God forbid, get a few turnovers out of it, like this is what, this is what a change in coaching regimes can do. And I'm glad that he's embracing it and that he's honest with where he's at. And I hope it means that they turn it around. Yeah, if we know anything about Drink at this point, it's that he's going to be honest. Yeah. Um, he He's going to tell it like it is. He's going to give you whatever is on the top of his mind. And he's pretty thoughtful with most of that stuff as well, which is, again, a kind of a nice change of pace. I, there were times when I was like, is... It, are, are we actually seeing Barry Odom or are we just seeing robot version of Barry Odom here right now? Um, and I think a lot of the times it was just robot version of Barry Odom. We saw a little bit of him. I remember after, I'm sure you'll remember this and most of our, our listeners will as well. Remember that Auburn game, right? Where it was just a disaster. <laughs> yeah. They got absolutely boat raced and everybody knew they were going to get boat raced. And afterwards he does the whole uh, burn the boats thing. It's like, okay, whatever. Right. Afterwards, I remember talking with another guy in the media who who knew Barry pretty well, right? He, he had known him for a long time, all the way back to his playing days. And he's like, it's nice to see the real Barry come out. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? He's like, that's Barry Odom. He's like, the guy we cover, that's not Barry Odom. That's not the guy that the, the guys in the locker room really love playing for. The guy that we see, I don't know who that is, but it is, it's not being honest to who Barry Odom is as a person and as a coach. And he, he was basically saying like, he doesn't think it, it did him any favors that he was kind of mellow and milk toast mm-hmm. in front of the media. And that's not the way at all that Eli Drinkwitz is. Mm-hmm. He's going to give you all of his personality whenever he's in front of that microphone. Yeah. I know. And I, I, I'm sorry, we're turning this into the Odom show again, but like, I remember in 2016 when he first got the job, like he was taking every interview request. He was sitting down with everybody. He was chatting with anybody who wanted to chat with him. And like practices were open. And then he won four games. And then he realized this is the SEC and this is him coaching his alma mater. And like, hey, things suck. And I feel like that kind of, I don't know, like he got burned, you know? And I'm not saying he was some gregarious open guy in 2016, but he was a lot more uh, willing to play nice with people than he was uh, even year two three and four um so it sucks and, and that's sort of the thing like you never know how you're going to be in a leadership position until you get to that leadership position and even when you do you kind of have to figure it out you got to figure out what's going to work for you and your staff and, and your team and what you want and that's why it always sucked that odom's first gig was here because I I, I I i still yep. say he's going to be a great head coach but 
he got thrown into the deep end. He had no no lead up to it. He had to figure out how to create a staff, how to run a program in the toughest league possible with a really bad team. And you know he'll he'll be great. He just was not great here. I will forever wonder what would have happened if he takes that uh, Memphis job yep. instead. Yep. You know, like that that was that is the level of program he should have been a head coach at at that mm-hmm. time. He had put in his work. He had proven that he was an outstanding defensive coordinator, and that is beyond reproach. He was and remains today, and we're seeing the results of this at at Arkansas. A really, really good defensive coach. Mm -hmm. Uh, It just, he wasn't ready to coach in the SEC. Very few people are, honestly, at any point in their careers, but he certainly wasn't at that point in his career. And so I wonder if instead of Mike Norvell, if we were talking about Barry Odom getting that job at Memphis, first of all, I wonder what the success would have looked like for him there, because I think he would have been successful. Yeah. That team was super talented. Yeah. And if he hired the right offensive guru, and that was going to be a really important hire for him there, just as it was here and ultimately led to his dismissal here in some ways, um, if he was, if he had a good offensive coach that would have come with him to Memphis, I think he would have been pretty successful yeah. there. Um, and I, I think we'd be talking about him a lot differently today than ultimately we are. And in part, because he, he wouldn't have been our coach, he would have been elsewhere, but we probably would have been talking about him as one of the up and comers around college football. Yeah. And honestly, whoever we would have hired, and I don't remember who was on the list. Um, I don't think it was that many people, but, uh, I don't know who we would have ended up with, but probably would not have lasted very long. Probably would not have been a very good couple of years just like it was for us and and maybe Barry Odom's the coach of Bizarro 2020 Missouri who knows you know like it's it's always tough to tell with these sorts of things but um yeah that do you remember who the other coach I don't were? I really don't I I remember um Tom Herman was the big name that everybody wanted because yeah. you know it was Tom Herman I remember Justin Fuente was a guy that we all talked ah, about here Fuente. but he ended up taking that Virginia Tech job yeah and he, he apparently didn't have it. Oh, oh, um, Troy Calhoun. Really? I forgot about that. Troy Calhoun was a name that was very much yeah. in discussion. He I forgot always about gets that. brought up with Missouri coaching searches. Well, yeah. um, oh, you know who I thought it was going to be for a certain amount of time was Sonny Dykes. <laughs> I forgot about oh, that name as boy. well. That would yeah. have been a mess. Yeah. I love Sonny Dykes. Well, we, he needs to stay in the G5. That is that is his jam. <laughs> he would not have worked here. I love him, but he would not have worked. Well, if you remember um, at the time, what's his face? The uh, the Panthers head coach now, Matt Rule. Mm-hmm. That was the guy that, that Mac Rhodes really wanted, but Rule didn't want this job. Yeah, I don't blame him. He ended him. up obviously hiring him eventually at Baylor, mm-hmm. but he didn't want the job at Mizzou. What a, what a walk down memory lane! I forgot about that. <laughs> I think we all blocked it out for a very specific reason. Um, Sonny Dykes, I forgot. I I really did. I I remember calling him one day, cold calling, and thinking that he was going to answer because I thought he was going to get the job. Wow. That would have been. I SMU has been good the past couple of years. He's he's improved the program. He does improve offense. It's kind of wherever he goes. Um, he's he's a nice uh, he's a nice in between coach. Like he's he's going to improve the offense and maybe raise your profile a little bit, but he's definitely a a short term kind of coach. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Who knows what would have happened? Maybe he would have hit it off here, but oh well. Thank God Mizzou has Eli Drinkwitz. Right, that's all I right? know. God, it's just 
again, I don't even I almost almost don't even care what happens the rest of the season. I've I've been very pleased with what he's done so far, and we still got you know God forbid, God willing, seven games to go. So uh, we'll we'll see what happens. But um, yeah, we're we're good with where we're at. Uh, what is uh, spreads at six and a half? I know we got our pregame and that comes out on Friday, but um, I'm taking the under. What do you think, man? Yeah, I so interestingly enough, I see it at four and a half. So it must be oh, different, different places okay. right now. Um, it's I I would pro I think there's value on the Mizzou side. Yeah, I, I do. I think that Mizzou has the offense where you get a couple of explosive plays. Maybe you've got enough playmakers. I I could see Mizzou at the at a very minimum losing this game if they were to lose, like. 17 20 mm-hmm. something like that 24 20 and even then you're keeping within the spread so i would take mizzou plus the points so plus the four and a half and if i were betting uh if i wanted to get some nice value i'd probably take mizzou on the money line because mm-hmm. i don't think it's all that outlandish that they would ultimately win this game i don't I agree I, I think you you have enough value there it is likely enough that I would probably take Mizzou on the money line to win. I'm predict. I would probably predict whenever we do our pregame in that Kentucky will win, but I I would not be surprised if Mizzou wins this game. Give me a 21-18. <laughs> yeah, something like yeah. that. A weird, something weird. Kentucky style yeah. game. I, that's yeah, I'm feeling it. So yeah, but we'll see. Um, any other last thoughts on this week? This is a big one. Yeah, um, it really is. My, 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 my biggest takeaway from all of this is just like Mizzou has a chance to really create some momentum for themselves with this game. If if they win this, you're suddenly feeling pretty good about what this season could be moving forward because you've got you got Vandy at the end of the season now, right? So you got Kentucky this week. You have two toffees, <laughs> obviously, with Florida and Georgia. Mm-hmm. But if you're able to beat Kentucky you're going to have an opportunity to win any of those final four games against South Carolina, Arkansas, Mississippi State, and Vandy. I don't know that they'll win all four, but you're at least going to go into those thinking that you've got a shot. So this kind of determines the amount of optimism that Mizzou fans can have for that final month of the season. So I'm hopeful, man. This is a big game for Mizzou, and if they're able to pull out a win or keep it close and make it a really interesting game late – I think Mizzou fans are going to be all in on the Eli Drinkwitz experience. Oh yeah, yeah. This is this is a little bit of hyperbole, but this is really the only win that I want in twenty twenty. This is the only one. Um, obviously, it, it's we got to beat Vandy because they're very bad. I love the LSU win that was out of nowhere. Um, I'd like to beat South Carolina. That's always fun, but like the only one I truly care about is this one. And the only time when I, you know, the only way that you start feeling like this is a different time for the Missouri program is when you get over the Kentucky hump because they're a bellwether team. If you are bad, they will beat you. If you are good, you beat them. If you screw up, they win. Like that's all they are. They, they hold up a mirror and they say, this is what you are. And if you can't beat them, then you're not any good. And that's where, that's where we've been for the past five years. So this is the only win I care about in 2020. And I'm putting way too much pressure on it, on them, on, on, on me. I want to be very disappointed if we're set. If we lose, I'm going to be sad. But like, still, it's it's just football on the on the TV, so it is a win no matter what. But that is the only one I want. This is the only one I want. And they also, the other thing, man, like they had two weeks to prepare. They did. And 
I, I don't know what Eli Drinkwitz is off of the bye. I, I, Undefeated I so far, sir. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it is something, though, right? Like, if you go to the NFL, and I only know this because I'm a Chiefs fan, but, like, Andy Reid's tremendous coming off of the mm-hmm. bye. And part of that is because he's a great offensive mind, and so he goes back to the drawing board. He kind of refreshes what the offense is going to be. You see some new looks. Eli Drinkwitz really kind of pulled out everything against LSU. He's probably got some new stuff that he's going to be able to pull out against Kentucky, and I don't know how much of it will work or how much of it won't, but it's going to be fun to watch. And so I, I, I think that plays into it. I think the fact that they should, hopefully, fingers crossed, have most of their guys back um, in this game after the quarantining and all of yeah. that, um, it, it it sets up much better to play this game now than it would have for them to play Vandy last mm-hmm. week. So uh, I, I think that ultimately can be good for them. It can be a positive thing moving forward. Um, so I, I just I got my fingers crossed, man. This could be a really fun one. When we're back talking to each other Saturday night, Sunday morning, whenever we ultimately are able to talk, it, it really could be a pretty big celebration for Mizzou fans. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. <sighs> well, that is our show. We'll be talking to you Saturday or Sunday or whenever, whenever we can get around to it. But um, let's hope that it's going to be a happy show that we record uh, right after the game. But um, that's at least it for tonight. We appreciate the downloads. We appreciate your subscriptions. You can leave a comment. You can rate us because we love all types of feedback. You can follow us on Twitter. I am at Nate G. Edwards. He is at BK Sports Talk. And of course, you can follow the Rock and Flagship at Rock M Nation. We appreciate you tuning in this time. We'll try to do better next time. And until then, M-I-Z. Yeah.